Hello and welcome to the Paranormalist Podcast. As always, I am your host, Kenny Dodson, and I am here with the Paranormalist, author, Patty Wilson. Patty, how you doing? Thought I'd get um, that in there. <laughs> yeah, I don't walk as, as I don't walk around with a little badge that says writer. So Maybe thank you. you should. <laughs> hey, you know I, what? I talked that about that. Weird. I talked about that card in my wallet for epilepsy. Maybe you should do that for being a writer. Get a writer bracelet or something. So no, I mean it's 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 like one of those things you just don't. It does. It just sounds very conceited. Hi, my name is Penny Wilson. I'm an author. I've got 29 books to my credit. You know, it just sounds really conceited. So thank you, Kenny. You're welcome. So what are we talking about tonight? It sounds like you're getting back to the writer in you with this one. Oh, I was going to say, did I ever leave the writer? No. Um, I'm working on a couple different projects anyways. But um, what we're talking about tonight is the Appalachian Mountains and the ghosts and folklore of the Appalachian Mountains. So I think before we go any further, we should probably define a little bit about the Appalachian Mountains. Um they stretch north to south in the eastern United States. Officially, they're pretty much defined now by the Appalachian Trail. And the Appalachian Trail itself is like 21, 2200. It depends on whose source you get. They, they vary. But approximately 2100 miles. That's a lot of walking for anybody who does it all the way from Georgia to Maine. Georgia to Maine. Mm-hmm. I thought that's, it was shorter than that a little bit. No, it's all. I mean, officially, that's the Appalachian Trail original way, the way it was cut. But and people don't do the whole trail all the time. A lot of people do sections of it. Like they might walk um, start in, in maybe uh, Virginia and walk, you know, to Vermont or, you know, or something like that. They would walk up in that direction or they might start in Georgia and walk, you know, to Virginia um, there are diehard people who take months and months and months and walk the entire thing. God bless them. I know two people that did that. And it took a long time, mm-hmm. I'm sure. It took their entire summer. Yep. And I bet they were young and very healthy. There's there's people who've, um, who have walked it who are very elderly. There was a, I cannot remember the lady's name, but she was 63 when she found out that no woman had successfully walked the entire Appalachian Trail. So she set out to do it. She got sick that year, got better, turned around and walked it. She walked it like I think the last time she walked it, she was 78. I don't think I could do it now. I know. That's what I'm (laughs) saying. I mean, like, God bless her. It's amazing. But, you know, along that trail, along that mountain range, there are um, there's a a huge amount of folklore. We have um, a huge amount of images from that folklore, the hillbillies, the banjo picking, um, their own type of music. Um, there's, you know, everything from very hardworking, dirt poor people to people of great sloth to people who are very religious and industrious um, are all amongst the images we see. But it's an entire culture and then subcultures beyond that that run those mountains. And then it's fascinating um, to, to learn a little bit about it. And I just thought that I'm fascinated with the, the work, the the ethics of these folks and, and their stories. Their history is just so many wonderful stories. Um, and they've been passed down in music and oral traditions 
for generation after generation, including till this day. So that's where your fingers took you today? Uh, actually, I guess I should say I owe a little bit of it to a gentleman by the name of Luke Bosserman, who um, is a gentleman who has a podcast on um, Americana. And while I was perusing his Americana podcasts, and I have like, I think I've seen 13 or 14 of them now, um, I came across a book he wrote, which was a fictional book, but it was based on the um, Appalachian legends and what have you. And the characters were phenomenal. So I was enjoying that. And it just one thing leads me to another and chain effect. I started looking at some of the folklore and I'm like, I should share this with folks. So that's how we got here today. All right. Do your folks lore then. Well, I would like to start out with a, a little story that I, I found. Um, there is a cemetery, in a, a Baptist cemetery in a place called Tilly's Bend in Georgia. And this little cemetery um, has a really interesting story. Now, the story goes by two different names. And what I found fascinating about this story is that... Um, both of these women were real and both of these women lived and, and their graves are in this cemetery. So uh, um, the story's either called um, Elizabeth Bradley, the witch or the witch Polly Long. Both women did live at the same time frame, you know, approximately a few years apart. And the story goes that either Elizabeth or uh, Polly, depending on who's telling the story, um, was... Be suspected of being a witch and then things in the in the little area of Tilly's Bend got really bad children started to die and they started to die at a very high rate and they couldn't come up with a good reason now this would have been in the mid 1800s um, so folks were starting to look around for something you know to blame and they whispered about these these this, these two women who were witches they didn't necessarily go together in any way but they, they just assumed one of them might have been the witch. Now, now, the story gets a little convoluted in this one spot because it's de debatable which one of the two was hung under the tree in the cemetery. But um, I believe it's Polly Long's grave is actually under the tree, almost as though after she was hung, they just laid her down on the ground, dug the hole, and buried her. But there is um, one reason that they think Elizabeth might also have been a witch. And that is the fact that Elizabeth was buried facing westward. Now, all in a cemetery, most of the graves, whether you know it or not, are facing east. Originally, that's how they would always done. So that they'd see the sunrise and Christ coming is the idea. Okay. Okay. And is that still what they do or? I'm not sure if they still do. I'll have to call an undertaker and ask. I mean, yes, I know an undertaker I could ask. Of course you do. <laughs> Of course, you probably know a ghostly undertaker as well, who's still taking few, care of a graveyard. I know a few. I don't actually know a ghostly undertaker, but I know a few people that know a few people. Anyway, <laughs> um, yeah, there's an entire, and some maybe sometime we'll do um, an, an episode about funeral etiquette and what have you, because everything in a in a cemetery actually has a meaning, like all the little scrolls and things that are on the tombstones and what have you originally had purpose and meaning. Oh, we were going to do one of those, right? Yeah. We were going to do a, a funeral home with a, a guy who works at one, right? At one and point. a gentleman, yeah, the gentleman didn't get back to us. We tried about four times. <clears throat> and I don't know if he got sidetracked or decided that maybe it wasn't good for his business or, and I told him he could, you know, be, um, 
anonymous, mm-hmm. as anonymous as you can be and be an undertaker. You just won't show your face. Does but he anyway, listen to this podcast? He did at the time. That's why he contacted us. All right. Well, if you're listening, we'd love to have you on for we real because it sounded very compelling. And I think a lot of people will get good insight. We haven't done like a real educational one in a while. So that might well, be a good one. There's a lot of um, symbolism and what have you in funerals and in cemetery, you know, tombstones and things like that. And one of the things was they would they would uh, put the grave so that it was facing east to the morning sun. And uh, this lady, Elizabeth, is buried facing west, which was um, held back usually for people who were considered evil or nasty or like, you know, somebody that wasn't, they didn't think was going to go to heaven. Although it's not their job to tell the difference, but you know what <laughs> I'm saying? Like, so they might, mar- they might bury a thief or somebody like that headed in the wrong direction. So the headstone is the thing that's looking the wrong way. Yeah. Right? The headstone okay. would be facing, they'd be buried face so that their body and the headstone would be facing East. Okay. So I just thought it was a fascinating story and supposedly, um, to this day, according to the, the lore, um, folks who wander into the cemetery will sometimes hear a woman screaming. There have been stories of babies crying and children crying out in the cemetery. And I, I know that it, this buttresses the story a little bit, but right around the same time frame that these two women lived, there, there's a section of the cemetery where there's a lot of little children's graves. And it does look like something swept through. Now, I'm sure that it was not Polly or Elizabeth who did it. But the folks didn't have a good, clear reason why people were dying. So they chose what they could find. And they they say that the deaths slowed down and stopped immediately after the death. Hmm. I mean, maybe. Well, it could be a coincidence. I mean, I don't know. It could just definitely be a coincidence. You know, stuff like that tends to run its course and then move on. Yeah, that's true. Uh, what's the next story? So I'm going to go to Pikesville, Kentucky. And this is the legend of Octavia Hatcher. So um, Octavia Hatcher was, uh, she lived in um, the eighteen late 1800s, like 1880s, 1890s. And uh, when she was pregnant with her first child, well, with her child, Jacob, her very first baby, she drew sick. And folks couldn't figure out what was wrong with her. Well, she um, she gave birth to the little fella. And soon after she gave birth to him, the little boy died. His name was Jacob. And he was buried out in the plot in the cemetery there nearby their home. Well, you can um, understand why Octavia, even though she started to get better, was very depressed. Um, you know, she just lost her, her baby and she was facing all that misery by herself. No matter what you you say it was she was alone with it well if the doctors noticed that it was going on and what have you and she seemed to just get so she got more and more depressed all the time until a couple weeks after her son died she fell into what was kind of like a coma-like state and the doctors tried to treat her in fact they even went and got another doctor from elsewhere to see if maybe he could help because the first doctor wasn't doing a whole lot to make it better and um on May the 2nd of that year, Octavia died, according to the doctors. And they buried her. Within days of her being buried, 
folks in the town started to report the sleep-like coma state. Somebody woke up and found a child that way, and another person found their mom and what have you. And there was no explanation for what it was. So as the doctors were trying to treat this, the doctor thought back to Octavia, and he's like, oh, my God. Maybe she wasn't dead. I mean, she wasn't responding. She didn't seem to have a breath, but these other people had a heartbeat. Maybe, maybe there was something wrong. So he actually um, exhumed her body, convinced them that they needed to dig her up. They exhumed her body and they found that she indeed had been buried alive. And as soon as they um, exhumed her and she was, it was discovered she had been buried alive, all the other people seemed to come back around, wake up, and whatever it was went away. It was almost as though she was um, infecting folks until somebody helped her and recognized what they had done to her by accident. So she had died. She had not died. They thought she had died, but um, she was in a coma state that was so deep that they didn't recognize that she wasn't dead. Well, like when they exhumed her body, she was dead at that point. Yes, at that point, she okay. was dead. Yeah. She had been in the grave for five days, so she had asphyxiated. She had died of lack of oxygen. Yeah, they didn't have like those bells or whatever on um, the grave nope, or whatever. they didn't have that, although that was a big deal at one point. In the Wild West, right? In the West, it was. In, in Victorian England, it was because the body snatchers, mostly mm -hmm. in Victorian England, they and then you'll find a little bit in New England because the, there were body snatchers that would sell bodies and there was also people who were afraid that they would get buried alive so they actually created that bell system so you could pull the bell that's why the bell the uh people would sit vigil the first couple nights after a person died and was buried they'd sit vigil to make sure nobody stole the body before they were buried and after they were buried they would sit another night or two's vigil to make sure nobody came in and dug them up yeah you told a really funny story on one of our tales about sitting up with the dead Oh, about <laughs> I had uh, when I was a little girl, there was this um, first generation Slovakian woman. Her name was Annie. And Annie is the one who told me this story. Her mom and dad came from the old country. And um, her mom used to tell the story about this, this lady who had passed away. And they had laid her out on a bench in her living room. And her house was built kind of up high. So there was is her living room would have been about second floor level, if you would, um, almost that high. And there, you know, they've got her laid out and she's in her dress and her nice dress and all of that. And everybody's coming to pay their final respects when all of a sudden somebody sees a twitch in her, you know, her leg and then her arm starts to move. And then she sits straight up. And when she does that, people go bailing out the window, right and left and down the stairs and out the doors and everything else. And she had been apparently in a deep coma of some sort and had come out of this during her, her own, her own uh, wake and startled the crap out of everybody else. Well, that was awake. It was awake. She got awake. <laughs> well, yeah. And that this whole story almost sounds like that thing that we talked about in one of our one of our early patron episodes about um you know having your spirit or whatever slip out mm -hmm. uh maybe that's what that coma was or something like that like she just I, slipped yeah. out for a while i think she just she was so i mean you can will yourself to death i've seen it happen 
I've n- I will never forget having seen that happen. I years and years and years ago when I was a CNA, I was working in a nursing home when I was young. I was maybe 26, 27. And um this lady came in. I knew she was coming in to stay permanent. And they told me, they took me aside and told me that she didn't know that she had been told by her son, he was going to let have her there. They were going to have her there to do some rehabilitation and she was going to get to go home. And I just thought that was so horrible to let her, you know, have that false hope, but I didn't say anything. It wasn't my job to. And they said, well, he's going to come and tell her face to face. So we're not going to, he asked that we not mention it. So I went in and I put on my brightest fake smile and I was like, good afternoon. How are you doing, ma'am? I'm Patty and I'm going to be your CNA today and get you all settled here. And she had this little suitcase and I said, how about we get you all unpacked and, um, you know, get you settled in so you can feel more comfortable. And she said, oh, there's no sense in unpacking. And I said, well, I realize that right now you think, you know, right now you're going to stay just a little while, but, you know, even just a few days it's not nice to have to live under out of a suitcase and I'm doing my very best to be as charming and sweet as I can be, you know, and not spill the beans. And I said, so, uh, how about we get your clothes all shook out and hung up so that they don't wrinkle. And she says that won't be necessary. Very calm and very fatalistically. I mean, there was just this air in her voice and it kind of brought me up short. And I looked at her and I said, ma'am, I would really like to help you unpack. And she said, honey, there isn't any point. I know that the only way out of here is to be dead and I'll be dead in a couple of days. Don't bother. And I'll be damned if not three days later, I came into work and you do a shift report, you know, whenever you come on about what's going on. And she had died the night before. And there was nothing wrong with her. I mean, nothing other than her age, but there was nothing terminally wrong with her. She literally willed herself to death. That's sad. It is sad, but it's true. I mean, human beings can think themselves into and out of the most amazing things. Well, our brains are pretty powerful. Much more so than we actually believe. Yeah. We've covered some of those on this podcast, but probably there's way more that we haven't. I'm sure. We'll come back to it at some point. I'm I'm sure of that. Speaking of patron, I forgot yes. to, to say this at the very beginning. Uh, we have a new patron. Yay. It is... Uh, Marie Miley Russell hyphen. Well, hello, Marie Miley hyphen Russell. Russell. Welcome and thank you very much for being a patron. We appreciate it. Yes, thank you very much. Yeah, I can't go around telling people oh, we're going to shout them out when and then just not do it. That's right. <laughs> so, um, okay. So, so we need another ghost story, don't we? I think we need several. Well, we need a couple at least. So the first ghost of Bristol. I thought this was pretty cool. So Bristol's like the Tennessee, Virginia border. Um, and it's a southern Appalachian town. And this is just kind of a fascinating story. In about 1854, there was a gentleman by the name of John Moore who owned a store in a small smokehouse in that area. He was preparing to... Um, to like add on to a store and make a new well and, and build on it and build on a house. You know, he was getting kind of prosperous. And so he, he decided it was time to upgrade. So in order to do all of this, he decided he needed to have a new well dug. So Mrs. Moore, the following morning after they had decided they were going to dig a well and where they were going to dig the well, she headed out to the smokehouse with a butcher knife, um, to cut off a a hank of meat to cook for breakfast and they heard her yelling and 
they came running out to the smokehouse and there she stood waving a knife and yelling, did you see him? Did you see him? And her husband's like, did I see what? And he was thinking, you know, somebody stole into the smokehouse and was going to steal stuff and maybe accosted her in some way as she walked in. And she was really rattled. Well, she finally calmed down enough to tell them that um, she had seen a, a Native American man and he was in the, he appeared in the smokehouse and he advanced toward her as if he was going to grab her or hurt her in some way. And um, she was absolutely convinced that this had something to do with this well. And interestingly enough, she had dropped the knife and when they turned to find it, it was gone and never was found again. I mean, it's a small smokehouse. It's, you know, the size of a bathroom. So losing it in there would be kind of difficult. But when she had screamed, she was, you know, and was waving that knife and he came in and she dropped the knife. And whenever they went to find it and he saw her with it, he knew she had it. They never could find it. Well, she was totally convinced that this was his, this man's way of saying, don't dig the well there, that my body's there and you'll disturb it. She was adamant. We're not doing it. We're not doing it. But her husband was just as adamant that he'd already contracted with somebody to do it. And that's where the well was going. So he did. He did start digging. And um, they did find a corpse there along from long ago, just the skeletal remains. And after that, it just seemed like... Um, the family had a lot of bad luck and she always blamed it on her husband disturbing that native man after he gave him a warning to let it be. So they just kept digging even after they found the body? Apparently so. What, like they just moved well, the bones at, or at, something? At the, or? Yeah, I mean that happened a lot. That still happens a lot. Yeah. People don't think about it, but it does. That's true. It yeah, people never really think about what was on their land prior to them, right? Sure. And you don't, and I'll be honest with you, because of archaeological digs and how much time and money and all that it costs, people will just, you know, toss the bones into a bone pile and keep on moving. In fact, one of the worst cases I ever dealt with started out with that kind of a story. And that was here in, in Pennsylvania, which is part of the Appalachian Mountain Range, the area that I'm talking about. So even though it's a modern story, I'll share it now if you'd like. Yeah, because how do you take care of something like that when bones get scattered? Well, in this instance, the property still has the problem oh. because the family never dealt with it in any way. Nobody was laid to rest. Nobody, no amends were made, nothing. But here's the story. This young woman came to me through various channels and I was told she was possessed. Um, the person who told me was a world-class exorcist. So I, I truly believed it. He said he was too far away and too busy. Could I help her? So I said, well, I'll give it my best shot. She's the one who told me the story. This is how her, her whole, this whole mess of her life began. When she was a little girl, her family owned a farm up in the mountains. And um, her, her grandparents lived there. And her dad would come back all the time to try to help on the farm and what have you. So they were all, they were pretty tight. Well, there was this one field that her grandfather had kind of cut it off crooked and left a swatch of land between the field and the road. And he'd always tell everybody, don't be messing in that land. And as he got older, 
her dad decided to put a house up there on the farm so he could help take care of his parents. And that swatch of land there between the field and the uh, road just seemed like a really good place. It was within, you know, close distance of his parents. It was close to the barns. It was easy access to the highway. It was a good place because you wouldn't be pulling out or um, in on a curve or anything like that. It just fit. And it was flat. It was already pretty much leveled. And as long as her grandfather was alive, he wouldn't allow for it. But after he died, her dad up and decided to do it anyhow. So he hired this fella and um, they started to dig for the foundation of the house. So this one afternoon, he said to her, she's about um, 12 years old at the point in time. And he said, come on, we're going to go out and see how the foundation's coming along. So she jumped in a pickup truck and went out. And uh, they're talking to the guy and the guy gets, you know, stops the the digger and everything. And he's they're talking and this rainstorm blows up and it starts to rain really hard. You know, the summer downpours that just come down so fast. And they're looking at the pile of dirt that he's dug and they can see bones appearing in the pile of dirt as the mud is being, the dirt's being washed off of them. Um, they saw some bones and her dad walked over and he was like, what is that? Is that a deer? And then they pulled out bones that were decidedly human, um, a skull, um, hip bones. And her dad and this guy looked at each other and he, the guy was like, what am I supposed to do? And he's like, I ain't going to stop it for this. And if you tell anybody about it, it's going to take weeks, months, maybe before we can get back to digging, if ever. And, you know, them crazy professor types come in here and they'll have it cordoned off for the next 30 years. So he decides that they're just going to gather the bones up and get rid of them. And that's what he does. And he tells her to behave herself and keep her mouth shut and not tell anybody, which she doesn't, she does do it. She doesn't tell anybody for a long time. Um, and that right down the, across the road and right down the road from them, maybe um, a few hundred yards, there was a opening to a cemetery. And I'm, he, she's not sure if these were graves from there or if like her grandfather said, it was an old native American graveyard and you best let it alone. But either way they put the house up and after the house was built, it was a brand new house. They moved in. And from the moment they moved into the house, they had nothing but trouble, bad luck. Um, they would get up in the morning and find the carpets rolled back up pictures off the wall, stacked by the door. Um, like somebody was saying, get the hell out of here. Um, they had shadow figures in the basement. There was like this little, um, area by the, where the furnace was and you could see figures walking and moving back in there. They saw figures in the driveway and then you would look again and they wouldn't be there. And then the smell of rotting meat and it got much more dark and complex after that. And, uh, she always believed it all started what it was happening to her and it happened to her for many years. I don't know if it's still happening or not, but that it happened because her father carried those graves, those bodies away and she kept the silence. And it was a true, it was a horrendous haunting. I mean, it destroyed the entire family. Well, what should be done in a situation like that? Actually, what should be done whenever you're going to build on some land? I mean, do you call someone like Patty to come check it out first? <laughs> Like, well, I mean, to make sure, you know, because you hear about this stories like this on the, right. you know, paranormal witness and all those far too often. So. 
Well, I, I mean, I don't know that I could tell you all the all the facts for every single thing that's ever going to happen, but um, I think you need to have a serious talk out there on your land to whoever's there. Look, you know, long time's gone by, and and I'm planning to build here and, and make a life and have a family, and um, I just wanted you to know that I don't mean to disturb you in any way. And, and if you do, I think knowing who and what they are would be a big help. Um, you know, if it's Native American, you should do a blessing and appeasement and give them uh, a gift, um, things like tobacco and corn and what have you, and show some respect in that way. If it's um, a white person or a European person, um, again, it's a different thing, and you're going to have a different set of ceremonies to do. But just being respectful is a big deal. And, you know, it was the disrespect of those bones by taking them and throwing them away that I think garnered the attention of the spirit world. Yeah, I mean, you can't even track them down. I mean, are they? Are we talking about trash? Like actual in the trash and in the dump or something? She's not sure. She said, all I know is he gathered them up, put them in the back of the pickup truck, took me across the road to my grandma's house and said, don't you dare tell a word or I'll tan your hide. And it was, she was rattled, you know, she's 12 years old and just watched her dad gathering up body parts, right? you know, and, uh, so she's kind of scared and she doesn't want to get in trouble. So she just kind of blows it off and keeps quiet. But he came back and he told her, he said, it's been dealt with. They're not there anymore. Just keep your mouth shut. And she's not sure what he did with them to this day. She's not sure. Hmm. And he would never talk about it after that. Not cool. So, you know, it's just a, it's a, it's an interesting story, but it's a tragedy for her because it began what ended up being a possession. One of the entities actually attached to her and eventually began to possess her. Hmm. So it wasn't just one bones. No. And, and, and whatever it was, I don't know if it just pulled in the, through its energy, other spirits or whatever, but she described um, different ones they would see. They saw a, a young man in a, in a military uniform from the Civil War era. They saw um, Native American spirits there. They saw a woman who would appear and she'd have black eyes. Then there was this other thing that came. Um, they would hear whispering and stuff like that. She, Her family lived in the house till she was in her late 20s. She left the house at about 18, came back when she was a full-grown adult and stayed there with her husband and um, for a couple weeks while they were waiting for their house to get, that they had just purchased to get um, ready for them to take possession of. And they brought with them their dog. And um, they went away one night with the family to like dinner or something and decided that they the dog was... Uh, would bark and carry on and throw fits and it never did any place else. So they took the dog down to the basement and locked the dog in this one area where if he made a mess or what have you, it would be easy to clean it up. And the dog literally dug with his, uh, dug till his toenails bled and were torn out trying to get out of there. And that, that was the last night she ever stayed in the house. Mm. So let's move on to, have you ever heard of the moon eyed people? Mm-mm. Well, you can't do anything on the Appalachian Mountains without talking about the Cherokee folks who lived there, so much of that, that mountain range. So according to the Cherokee Indians, long before white men came to 
this land, there was a race of little bearded white men who lived in the mountains. They were um, often referred to as the moon-eyed people. Um, they possessed all the land from the Little Tennessee River to Kentucky. And the men um, had large blue eyes and fair white skin and were sun-blind during the day, emerging from their homes at night to hunt, to fish, to wage war. Because they only could see in the dark, the Cherokee called them the moon-eyed people. So um, people believed that they were the descendants of a group of Welshmen who came to America long before the Spanish and settled in the Smoky Mountains in 1170. And the legend goes that the people eventually abandoned their homes or were driven from their homes and traveled west. But then they disappeared. They've never been seen again. Ever? Ever. But here's some things that are interesting. Um, there's a uh, Cherokee County Historical Museum in Murphy's, Tennessee, or excuse me, Murphy's, North Carolina. And um, they have a soapstone statue. It's 37 inches tall and weighs about 300 pounds. And it's believed to be a um, depiction of the moon-eyed people. And, you know, it's it's very distinctive. They talk about them being real short of legs, very pale, um, with little flat round faces. And that's exactly how this looks. Is it a statue or is it them turned nope. into a statue? They're not that little. OK, um, but no, but it's fascinating that you'll find that lore all throughout that region, you know, and it's and it's always described the same. In fact, they um, the Blue Ridge Mountain which is part of the Appalachian Mountains range, um, had a lot of stories about that. They say that um, the Europeans who first discovered that area found remains that um, fit the moon-eyed people, and they couldn't explain the way what they found because they, they didn't fit any. They weren't buried the way the Native people buried their people. Um, everything about it was just wrong, for it to be part of uh, the native cultures of that area. So they couldn't figure out who this, who this, these people were. And to this day, nobody has the faintest clue what happened to them. Kind of like some of the native Americans that disappeared in the Southwest and what have you, they just, they're just gone. Yeah. It's crazy that that story lives on because nobody has sightings today, you know? Yeah. I think it's because it's so distinctive. Um, and it was well, I mean, it was a well-established story. It was written about by the first whites that came to the area. The Indians told the story. They were fascinated because these were like taller versions of the, of the moon-eyed people. And, and these white people could come out in the daytime and they weren't, they weren't, you know, sun blind. Um, so they were fascinated because they had seen white people before with blue eyes and, and, light hair, but they had never seen any who could do the things they could do. So they couldn't go about during the day at all. They said they were like a sun whole other species of people almost. Well, there is some speculation in the UFO community that they might have been aliens. You know, there are the, um, the blonde Aryan type aliens and what have you, that there might've been a species of aliens. Really? There's always, there's a speculation. Like alien human hybrids or something or 
Well, I mean, I don't know whether it would be alien human or aliens that just came here and tried to settle mm-hmm. and assimilate and didn't make a very good job of it. Okay. You know? So, um, but I just thought it was a fascinating story. And while we're with monsters and un- unusual creatures and what have you, did you ever hear of the Flatwoods monster? Nope. Well, you will tonight. Are these all really famous things that I should be embarrassed? I don't know. <laughs> well... They're very famous. Well, the Moon Eye people aren't quite as famous, but um, the Flatwoods monster in the UFO and um, community is well known. Okay. But it's okay, Kenny. Everybody knows it. I'm the ghost person. Okay. And you don't, you know, you're you're the guy that does all the other back end stuff. Sometimes people like, works. I love when our guests, I'm like, who's that? And they, everyone, all three or however many guests we have just pause and stare at me. <laughs> What's your problem? You've never like, heard of me? Uh, sorry. What do you want me to say? Ignorance. So that's right. See, I, I, that's why I'm here. I help you navigate these waters. Yes. Lead me in. All right. So prepare for the Flatwoods monster. Okay. So it was in the late summer of 1952 when these two brothers, um, Edward and Fred May, um, they lived in Flatwoods, West Virginia, came rushing home to tell their mom that... They'd seen something unexplainable. They'd been playing ball at the, out by the school, and they had witnessed a bright UFO streaking across the sky and landing on, um, or crashing, depending on who you talk to, um, in the woods not too far from a local farmer's house. So, you know, she was intrigued by what the kids were saying and decided that, you know, she probably should take a look at this. So she called the police, and her kids went off you know, boys would have done back then. They didn't, they weren't like today where they all sit in front of the TV and play video games for 28 hours. <laughs> you know, they would just go outside and play. So the boys go out and they're talking to some of the other boys and they're saying what they saw. And the boys decide they're going to go and explore and check it out. So before the police get there, the boys make it there and they find what they call an odd shaped thing with red glowing, um, glowing red with smoke and steam coming off of it. So, uh, whatever it was, it seemed to have like been overheated, almost like it burned up on, um, entry, if you will. Well, there amongst the kids that were going there was, uh, a 17 year old boy by the name of Eugene Lemon. He was a national guardsman, just joined the national guard and he had been tagging along. And when he saw this, um, he brought along a flashlight and he poked it, was poking around and he's just flashing the light all over because it's getting dark by now. And he sees this bright pair of eyes in a tree. Um, he, they described it. They all saw it. They described it as a 10-foot monster with blood-red face and green body that was glowing softly. And once they flushed, flushed the light on it, it glue, kind of glowed a little bit more brightly, almost as if it had toned itself down to not attract as much attention. Although being a 10-foot monster with blood-red face and green body that glows <laughs> is really kind of hard to miss. Yeah, you'd think that. You would, <laughs> but it brightened up almost as though it was like, Oh my God, I was caught or something like that. Huh. Um, it hissed and floated towards the group. That's what they said. It floated towards the group It didn't run, didn't lunge. It just sort of shushed. Well, I'm looking at like a picture, mm-hmm. an artist rendition here and they just don't have legs period. Right. I mean, yeah, that's... there was no leg seen on it at all. So um, poor Eugene Lemon, the 17-year-old National Guardsman, it comes flying at him and he takes off, dropping the flashlight. 
some of the people um, in that group of kids fainted. Others started to vomit and the rest of them got sick whenever they got back home. They started vomiting. So, you know, maybe it had some physical impact on them. Maybe it was in some way poisonous to them or like there was radiation a, or something. Radiation was yeah. the other. Yeah. So, you know, some of the group who's surviving and haven't passed out or laying around vomiting, go running down the hill telling the sheriff what's going on. So at that point, this becomes kind of a seven day wonder. The sheriff rolls out and calls up his local fellas and they all come with guns and to the scene. And um, there's where where Eugene Lemon leads them up there to the place and they they find this horrible smell and. They say that it's like you can, you know how whenever you look at a fire across the fire, you can see those heat waves. Yes. The, it, I yes, do know. I know you do. I know you do. That's <laughs> why I thought I would use an analogy that you would recognize. Thank you. No problem. <laughs> since you're the firemeister. Anyway. Yes, I am. So um, they actually said that the, this is not the children now. This is the full grown men. This is the sheriff and his deputies and the kind of posse he loaded up, you know, and they're out there in this horrible stench. And they look across where the kids are pointing and they said uh, they could see what looked like heat waves in the air, almost as though. And I always thought this reminded me more of like a cloaking device. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. The Because I can't come up with any reason why there'd be heat waves without the the piece of a uh, debris being there and they didn't see the debris at all they just saw the heat waves um so they didn't uh see enough to make any real impact but they did notify the authorities um and this is what was gathered you know whatever little bits and pieces they found were gathered up and sent to washington dc because back in that day you trusted the government you said hey i found this stuff and i don't know what it's from and you know, what is it? Well, it all disappeared. Nobody seems to know what happened to it. Um, when they contacted the people they sent it to in Washington, they were like, stuff, what stuff? You must be crazy. <laughs> and, you know, they weren't worried about the 10 foot tall monster guy. They were just like, heck, we didn't get no debris, no, no nothing. So um, the story has lived on to this day. In fact, there's a Flatwoods Museum. They actually advertise it as Flatwoods, home of the green monster. Um, nobody really knows what happened there, but we know something happened there because, you know, we have this group of teenage boys who saw it, but we also have a group of men who had at least some experience with it. Um, so obviously something happened. And I just thought it was a a fascinating story. Yeah, all these renditions of it are pretty consistent sometimes you have things like the mothman and what it looked like and they all look so vastly different but all these sketches all these everything they they're pretty in order (laughs) there's what is that around its head it it looks like a i don't know like a victorian era like queen outfit where it goes above the head then that's how they always described it um that they they saw that that it had like collar or whatever you would call it. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and it's it's always described the same way, pretty much. Interesting. Okay, Flatwoods monster. Yep. Looks like a robot or something. It, I always thought that too, but like I said, I I whatever it was, maybe it was some sort of spacecraft that crashed and. 
you know, maybe the thing was trying to gather its wits and um, hide itself in some fashion. And that's why it used a cloaking device of the heat waves to kind of warp the atmosphere around this. And there are stories, there's other stories, you know, of people who saw stuff in that time frame that usually that explain what they saw and then it disappearing and they saw the heat waves. So it's not an, a singular story in that respect. Hmm. That's cool. Cool story. So I just, I just thought it was a cool story and I thought, um, how much time do we have? I have one more story I'd like to share. Enough time for one more story to share. All right. <laughs> so um, we began this in the South and we're going to end it here in Pennsylvania, which is my bailiwick. That's how I earned the name of Ghost Lady of PA, which I'm very proud of. And it is PA, everyone. It's not Pennsylvania. It always, on the, on the signs, and God bless the children, it was always Ghost Lady of PA. I have one, I think, where it said Ghost Lady of Pennsylvania, but... Um, yeah. And that would, that actually came about cause I go to schools and talk to the kids and I looked up the, probably one of my first schools and I was at the auditorium and there's this huge banner that, that was, I think it was, it spanned the entire entrance to the gymnasium and it said, welcome ghost lady of PA. And I just smiled that if I, if I, uh, when I expire, I'm sure I will like all of all mortals, <laughs> I sure hope they put, uh, I sure hope they say, here lies the ghost lady of PA. Am I going to be in charge of your materials? Do <laughs> <laughs> like, you know right. what? My materials aren't worth a, a Kenny will way. make sure that this is on my headstone. <laughs> but uh, my kids argue over who's going to get the stories and all this. And I'm like, dude, you can't own a story. You can if it's in a book. Well, you can own that version of it, but you can't own, like folklore. One of the things that's beautiful about folklore to me mm-hmm. is this is timeless. It's passed down year after year. Um, so, and so we're going to come to my last story, Hewitch Eger. This is a Pennsylvania German story. And Hewitch is, um, he was, this is a story that's been passed down amongst the Pennsylvania German people and, and the people of like York and, and Lancaster County for many, many a generation. So there was a, a great time of um, famine that came upon the, some of the first of the Pennsylvania Germans who settled here. A few winters in, after they settled in, it was a bitter, cold, nasty winter, and the spring came, and it was a kind of horrible spring when it was rainy and you couldn't plant, and then it was too hot and too dry, and the plants just withered and died, and you know, along with the plants all dying meant the animals started to die because there wasn't enough forage to go around for all of them. So come fall, things were getting really bleak. The crops only produced a small percentage of what they should have. And people were living by their crops. You know, today we don't think about that stuff. Um, we might start some point in time, but, you know, right now we all think that it just comes out of a grocery store, but it doesn't. It comes from some farmer's field. And we eat because of their hard work. Mm-hmm. Well, there was just not enough food to go around. And as the fall, you know, gave way to late autumn and cold weather, people were beginning to make some rumblings that they weren't going to make it through the winter. There weren't enough fish in the streams and there wasn't enough game to be hunted. And the crops have all been gathered and there just wasn't enough. And they knew it. 
Ewich was a young man and he was one of the best hunters they had and had a pack of coon dogs and he would, well, hound dogs that he would use when he was hunting. Now today we don't think about hunting with dogs as a big deal, but those dogs could spook out game and run it down for you. So they were a vital and important part of a hunting process for a lot of people. And Ewich said to, you know, there were things that were getting bad and they were talking about who wasn't going to get the grain and stuff to live in the spring and they had these meetings and, well, you could just see where it was all headed. And on this one night after one of the meetings, they were like, wish we could get some, you know, we could just get some game and there's got to be some game around here somewhere. And Urich was all fired up over the whole thing and he said, well, I'm going to, I'm going to go out hunting and I'm going to get us some game and I'm not turning around and coming back until I do. And one of the older men said, well, you're rich. You might be out there a long time. And he said, well, I'll run till the end of the earth until the end of time if I have to, but I'll be back with the game. And they say that old boy, he's still out there hunting somewhere to this day down around Lancaster County way, York, what have you in the mountains some cold, dark fall nights, you'll hear dogs a-howling, baying, as if they're on the scent. And you'll see a lone hunter in old-fashioned clothes and wooden shoes, clonking along, running behind them dogs, chasing right directly under the moon. They say, that's you, Rich. He was as good as his word. He's still a-hunting, and he's not coming back until he gets some. So he just never came back? Nope. Is that, that the story? Never came back. He's supposedly still out there hunting. He became an eternal part of the fabric of those mountains. Hmm. That's a bummer. So what happened to all the people that were back? Well, some folks died, just like you can imagine, and some folks survived to tell the tale. And that's why the story of Urich is still being told to this day. Yeah, winter would have been hard back then. People today, well, you don't, there's a thousand things about people today. Like I lived in Old Bedford Village and I literally, you know, you cooked and lived that way. I've lived off grid and I know that it takes a lot of work. You spend every day, all day long, not thinking about what's the next video game you're going to play or, you know, popping something in the microwave. But you start at six o'clock in the morning with getting a fire going so you can cook something to eat. And then you spread it out over the day and you're trying to figure out what you're going to cook for supper. And you better have it on by noon if you're cooking it on a wood stove because it could take that long to get it cooked. And then, you know, what you try to be very frugal with everything because, you know, you have to be. And I've I've seen and I'm not making fun, but I've seen city folks come into the country and try to spend a little time and they'll have this little pile of wood, you know, stacked up, ranked and all like that's going to do me in the winter. And I'm like, oh, no, baby, <laughs> that's not going to do you two weeks. That's like one fire for me. <laughs> you know, it's yeah. it's like a little rank or two along the back of a of a porch and you need your whole backyard covered in wood because till springtime comes. You know, you had to think about that stuff. You had to do that and you had to follow the seasons. We were much more attuned with the seasons back then because we followed the seasons. It was when you hunted, when you gathered, you didn't hunt in the summer months, those meat squirrely. You can't, you can't keep it and you don't kill whenever there's young ones. So you didn't hunt in the springtime. So you needed to, in the fall when it was cold, hunt enough to get you through the springtime and summer. So, you know, you would you would hunt and you would uh, salt down your meat and what have you and dry it and smoke it. 
and ho hopefully it would last. And then come spring, you would maybe get some early spring, you could get some turkey, some rabbit, squirrel, but you can't live off a of squirrel and rabbit. You'll get what they call rabbit starved because there's not enough fat on it. So right. then you got to look at um, the fish and, and the fresh greens that come up and what have you. And this is almost a lost art. I mean, I have to tell you, I've done it and I know what to do and I know what you can eat and when you can eat it out there. There's things out there you could eat first time it comes up out of the ground. But if you eat it three weeks later, it'll kill you. Mm -hmm. You know, you were and that off the grid. I didn't know you were that off the grid. Oh, I know what's out there. I know what's out there. I mean, even Amish people don't aren't that off the grid. When oh, you think about Jesus it, like Christ. they're, they're self-sustained, but at the same time, you know, they could just go down to the store down the road or whatever <laughs> they can and they do sometimes particularly in certain areas yeah but no i i mean i know a good bit of woods lore and what have you i grew up with it and my grandmother was that way my grandmother-in-law was that way um my ex was a uh very much into survivalist thing and we lived off grid you know, I knew what what spices, what what things you gathered for to make soups, what things you gathered to make uh, medicines, and when how to make them and what have you. We would live, you know, we lived for a year and a half off grid completely. Do you miss it? Uh, sometimes it's a lot of work. We put up four hundred uh, jars a year of food. That doesn't count the three hundred pounds of potatoes and all the other stuff. But there were no chemicals in anything we had because we raised it, and we hunted, and you know we butchered and we and we preserved our own meats and stuff. And it was a lot of work. But um, the other times I miss it. I mean, I don't I don't eat foods today that taste so good very often. There was a different flavor to them. Like if you ever ate wild turkey and you ever ate domestic turkey, you guarantee, I guarantee you tell a difference. Yeah, one's kind of gristly. Not if it's cooked right, but that's like duck. You got to learn how to cook things. You got to learn how to do it right because you can't cook modern ways and cook that stuff. Like duck's got to be sitting up out of the pan. Duck's full of grease. Now that grease is good for lots of other things. You have to think ahead about everything because you can use that grease for about a half dozen different items, you know? So you don't, you don't waste anything. Like the Inuits and seals, right? Like the blubber yeah. and every... Well, I mean, you would use it for lots of things. You could, um, it, you can use it to start a fire. You could use it to m make a tallow candle. You can use it for cooking if you had to, as long as you don't let it go rancid. Um, you know, there's a hundred different things you could use it for. And you just had to think ahead for everything. No fridge? We didn't have a fridge. What? <laughs> nope. Oh, that would freak me out. We had a cold box in the water. I'm like, is this still good? I don't know. Ugh. No, no sell by dates either. Oh, you just had to learn how to to know things. I think I'll stick with the current way. <laughs> Although it might, anyway. it might sound it does sound like it could be fun to get away from it all for a, a small time, but definitely not over a winter, I wouldn't say. Oh, I, like I said, I've wintered over three, four winters like that. And it's fine. It's fine. You just learn how to think outside the box on everything. Or in advance. Well, you do. You have to think um, both. You're going to have to think outside the box because it, it's nothing's by the book, you know. Um, and then you have to also plan ahead, seriously plan ahead, because you do not want to find out you're running out of firewood 
in January. That is the most inhospitable time of the year to have to go out and just try to saw logs and get wood. Patty, saving the last, the the most terror-filled story for last. What's the most terror-filled <laughs> story? Living in the woods? <laughs> <laughs> Living without electricity. <laughs> it's surprising how easily you can do it. It takes about two weeks to make that switch over, but once you have, you would be surprised how peaceful it is. I'm sure. You don't have a bunch of, like, you don't have news hounding you and telling you stories and, you know, twisting it and what have you. You just don't, it doesn't matter. The rest of the world falls away. It doesn't matter. It's just you and the earth. Yeah. You learn how to live one-on-one and you take care of you and your family. And we had kids, you know, we had three kids. So, um, those things became our world watching the seasons and everything. But I've seen things and done things that most folks haven't. And I'm truly grateful for the opportunity to have done so. Yeah, you are right, though. Getting out into nature does something. It's very positive. It recalibrates your soul. And I mean that literally. We haven't done that yet, right? We haven't done an episode on that about the vibration of the earth and whatnot. I think we mentioned it briefly, but that's about it. Yeah. But it really does. It recalibrates your soul. It also teaches you what's really real. And it tests you. And you feel very accomplished when you succeed. In a way, I don't think people feel accomplished today. Well, when everything's about the next step, the next day, I could see that. Yeah, you, Woo, you feel... we made it. Woo, yeah. we made it again, right? <laughs> well, I mean, you, you don't think that, but you just, you know... You get a sense of, of independence and peace. Like, I got this. I got this. I, I, I can manage without. You know, we look at our forefathers and, and what they did. They, you know, they would come to the store spring and fall and they might trade for some salt and, um, you know, a few other things but and flour and what have you. But in maybe not even that. Um, a little bit of lead, and if they weren't able to do the weaving on their own, which a lot of home, homesteads did in the 1700s, you know, they made everything. They made their own cloth. They made their own thread. They made their own everything. That would be something. I can't even imagine it in a way. No, we're not doing it, Patty. So I say you went go to the village for no, a week. No, stop it. <laughs> we could do it in January when there's nobody around. I'll make sure that there's plenty of wood out there. Uh, I hate the cold as it is. You can oh, you'd find out about the cold because the only place that's warm is right in front of that fireplace, and it only has a radius of about three and a half feet. Exactly. If if I can see my breath in my own house, no thanks. You can not only see your breath, but chip the snow and ice off of you in some of them cabins in the second floor in the winter. Yeah, pass. Hard pass. <laughs> thanks for the <laughs> offer, though. Well, if you ever change your mind, just get me now. <laughs> well, I bet the pair of peeps didn't know they were going to get a lesson in survival. But you never know what you're going to get on this podcast. That's well, pretty much it. Well, if they're interested, they can let me know. And if not, I truly apologize for taking up the time. I'll share an extra ghost story next time to make up for it or something. No, we were to the end anyway. So it's all good. It's all gravy after the hour. You know what I mean? So It's well, just cherries on top. But it's I, I have to tell you, there's times I really do miss it. You're... um. You'll be surprised. I still think about maybe going back to it someday. I could just think the quiet. The quiet's amazing. Although quiet can be scary too. No, the quiet's amazing. You learn what every sound means mm -hmm. in ways you don't know today. 
because everything's just crazy with noise. Even our quiet's not quiet compared to that. Yeah. Yeah, nighttime would definitely be interesting out there. Well, anyway, <laughs> uh, what what other business do we have? Patreon. Everyone, we have 21 episodes up now. Yes. Extra. We're, that we're you, getting there. That you haven't gotten, that you haven't seen and never will if unless you don't you become. become a member. Yeah, so become less. a patron normalist and the link will be in the description. And that supports the show, helps us grow. And you also get a little something yourself. Yep, it's only $5 a month to get all those extra stories. And, you know, we are so eternally grateful. And you're helping to build this podcast. Absolutely. And we've hit, we've gotten past the 25 member mark. So that was pretty much our our first goal. So let's see if we can get 50 here. Oh, you are a hopeful soul. They'll they'll be 50 because there's a lot of folks who like it. And really enjoy a good, you know, ghost story and a, and the folklore and what have you that we share. Yeah, and there's a lot of the outside the box stuff too. There is a lot of outside the box stuff. It just depends where I wander off to. That occasionally makes it to the main show, but not always. So anyway, that's all for today. Appalachian stories. Go hike the Appalachian Trail if you want to run into some of these, what people. <laughs> historical well, figures well not, they're not just on the trail but you know go check out the places where you live go check out the um the trail itself is beautiful but be careful be prepared it is rough and it is rural and you are going to run across bears and crazy people and all kinds of stuff on your journey the bears is the scariest part no the crazy people is the scariest part okay maybe that Dun, 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 the, the dun, bears. Dun, dun, dun. Yeah. I don't mean that. I mean cannibals. Like, no, okay. No, I'm not talking that even. I'm saying that there's there's been some murderers who've like hiked the trails and hidden and like picked people off and stuff like that. There's some serious crap that goes on in those trails, and you you don't have you're not anywhere near the police. You're miles and miles back in the woods, so you just have to be prepared. Is what I'm saying. I'm not saying don't do it. It's not that every other person's a murderer, but you just have to be prepared. Again, it's one of those things where you have to think ahead. So make sure that you have protection. Make sure you're not completely isolated. Make sure that people know where you're at. And they do have places where you should go and check in. Tell your family, I'm going to be at this spot on such and such a day. And if they don't hear from you within a day or two, they better start calling the local police. You still have to be proactive. Okay. On that uplifting note. No, that's just common sense. (laughs) So, all right. We will catch you guys later. Have a good night. I don't know what else to say. Just good night. (laughs) 